Good morning. I was a newly minted 18-year-old, moving three hours away from home to rural Illinois for my freshman year of college. This is where we start today. I spent meticulous effort choosing my dorm bedding, the decorations for my room, my, my home away from home, if you will, because everybody had been talking for months about what a monumental milestone this was. Your best years of your life are in college. The best friends you'll ever make are in college. The memories you'll hold most dear are in college. And when I tell you I hated it, <laughs> whew, I tried, I did, hard to make friends. I remember like a week into moving onto campus, I invited everybody in my dorm to my, uh, to my room to watch a Boy Meets World uh, watch party with chocolate fondue. Because as an 18-year-old, I had a fondue machine uh, as a kitchen essential that everyone has. And I am a strong introvert, but I ripped myself out of my room, uh, kept trying to be around and available to try to find my people. I took pictures to document everything. I was always busy with so many social events going on, you know, your first semester of your freshman year of college. But I was so lonely. My roommate even found someone else and moved out on me at semester. <laughs> it was me, apparently. Now, it got better. But I think most of us can attribute a season of loneliness in our lives to a major transition, like going to college, or moving to a new city, becoming a parent, maybe enduring a divorce, losing a loved one like a spouse, the empty nester phase. In 2018, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May appointed the world's first Minister of Loneliness to address the growing public health crisis in the UK. And then in 2021, Japan followed suit, and they also created their own appointed loneliness minister position. And earlier this year, in May, our own Surgeon General declared loneliness as an epidemic and released an advisory on the healing effects of social connection and community. And this wasn't a new thing. He's been speaking publicly on this since long before the pandemic, saying that about one in two adults in America has reported experiencing loneliness. And so for those then that experience loneliness chronically, it has actual consequences for health. Loneliness shortens our life expectancy. Loneliness is associated with increased risk of heart disease, depression. It doubles your odds of cognitive decline. Loneliness means that something is dangerously wrong and it must be treated before it causes you further harm. And so these government agencies see isolation and loneliness so seriously, they are begging people, please, join a book club, find a bowling league, like meet a neighbor, something. And it's bizarre, really, to hear health experts speak of the need for social connection, because I think for many of us, we see that as an auxiliary perk of our lives, rather than as the very tangible necessity that it is. As much as we were designed to need food, to need water, sleep, we were designed with a need for community and for belonging. Live Free is a recurring sermon series that grants us the opportunity to see how our spiritual lives intersect with our mental and our emotional health. Now, we could see how loneliness and social connection and relationship connects to our mental and emotional health, but God also has much to say about our relational connectedness. 
Church, the unique opportunity before us as we dive in this month to talking about relationships is to recognize that our deeply human need is also a deeply spiritual one. Our social connection has everything to do with our discipleship to Jesus. Way back to the beginning in the creation narrative found in Genesis, God spends the first chapter bringing our reality into existence and everything he creates he deems good. When God creates man, he deems Adam as very good. And do you know the first time that he marks that something isn't right, that something is wrong? It's when Adam is alone. In chapter two, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Back to our origin story, our design demands relational connection. The author of Ecclesiastes paints a bleak picture of social um, isolation. In chapter four, he says there was a man. He was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. He says, if I'm putting all this effort into, into life, into success, into, into my work, whatever it is, and I have no one to share it with, what is, what's left for me? The author continues, two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So the author here has points. We need other people. We need other people to help us when we fall down. Figuratively, I will admit literally, I have needed that in the, in the past. We need other people when life gets cold. We need other people to have our backs and journey with us. Life is a team sport. It's not an individual competition. In the book, The Relational Soul, these authors, uh, Plass and Cofield, a counselor and a spiritual director that wrote this book together, they tell us that God designed us to enjoy giving and receiving. God designed us to be for another. And God designed us to receive from another. He even, we even receive our understanding of ourself in relation to one another. They continue, if we're to love and be loved well, we will have to come to terms with both our relational design and the state of alienation that we find ourselves in. Loneliness is a problem, palatable around us and within us, and the opposite of loneliness, the thing that we crave is a sense of belonging. So we need one another. But many of us would say we have a lot of friends or acquaintances or family that's close by or like a thriving social inactivities calendar or 600 friends on social media, but we are still struggling with isolation, with loneliness. And I mean struggling. Reports of depression in our country are at an all-time high. That Surgeon General's advisory has some stats Living in isolation reduces our chances of survival and social isolation increases the risk for premature mortality by 29%. Among older adults, chronic loneliness and social isolation can increase the risk of developing dementia by approximately 50%. And poor social relationships, social isolation and loneliness can increase your risk of heart disease by 29% and stroke by 32%. 
And while we would like to think that community and belonging are then just readily available for us for the taking, and that maybe even we think we're experiencing too much of it because we're so social, we're so connected, we're so busy, for some reason what we are experiencing does not scratch the itch or fill the void. And there's repercussions to that. Let's talk about social media more for a second as an illustration of this. The majority of us use social media daily, but less than half of people on social media actually post content anymore. Like once in a while you'll throw up a tribute to National Donut Day or something, and, uh, but the majority of Americans are getting on social media every single day and resign themselves as silent observers of the most highly curated parts of other people's lives. And we think that that's connectedness. We think, look at all these people that I know and that I'm connected with. I mean, on Facebook alone, the average user has 338 friends. We know a lot of people. And so we think we shouldn't be lonely. We think loneliness isn't something that we should struggle with. In the early 2000s, sociologists reported on average the majority of Americans had two confidants, people who they said in their lives they could talk to about serious matters in their lives. In that same report, though, a quarter of participants said they had zero. No people that I can talk to about what's going on in my life, about important things to me. And Gallup reports that one in five people don't have friends or family that can be counted on when needed. So it's not as simple as making more friends or talking to the friends and family that you already have more often. There is something more complicated going on here. See, we think that our level of connectedness should equate to our depth of community. But these are not one-to-one -one comparisons. These are not the same thing. See, I think we're lonely because we yearn for belonging, but we aren't known. I think we're lonely because we don't share ourselves, our real selves, with anybody. Before he was the Man of Steel, Superman was a teenager named Clark Kent. At least he was on the TV show Smallville, which is another thing I loved during college, along with chocolate fondue. And in the early years of Smallville, Clark's main goal was to be invisible. It was to fade into the background and be as normal as possible, which for him meant hiding his history, his family of origin, hiding his powers, his struggles from everybody around him. And so early in season two, Clark finally gets the opportunity to show one other person, his best friend Pete, who he really is. Now, Pete is initially pretty freaked out about this. I wouldn't say Pete handles this the best. And Clark's fears about letting other people see himself for who he really is seem to be confirmed. But Pete comes around, and he remarks to Clark that it must be pretty hard to be you. And Clark shares that if Pete has his back, it makes all the difference. Having just one other person really know and accept him gives Clark the sense of belonging that he craved. People with tons of Christian friends are lonely. People with close-knit family members are lonely. People who are at church every single week are lonely. People who are busy every night of the week, who join multiple groups and social activities are lonely. The proximity to people does not automatically fix the problem or change the diagnosis. John Mark Comer, author and pastor, notes that good Christian people trying to have healthy relationships are not lonely due to lack of effort. It's because, he says, they share the goodness of them, what is right about them, but they never share the wrongness of them. 
our greatest intimacy comes from our deepest vulnerability. We think our level of connectedness should equate to our depth of community. I have all these people I know, I have social media friends, we chit-chat at the grocery store, we're on the same PTO or classroom parents, we're in the same club, we're in the same classes at school, we work at the same job, but we can't foster true, rich, actual community at this level alone. We cannot foster community without authenticity because it is impossible to believe that you are loved and you are accepted if you have hidden your true self from being known. So what do we need then to find belonging? The relational soul continues that the foundation for relational connection and communion is the capacity to trust appropriately and well. Trust enables us to be present to God and others with fewer defenses. It fosters openness, attentiveness, curiosity, acceptance, forgiveness, all needed for healthy relationships. We can't love well or be loved well without trust. We need people we can trust so we can have a chance to trust them with ourselves. We are our own worst critic with this too. We are really prone to self-sabotage. I mean, the internal monologue in our head goes, nobody would want to hang out with you if they really knew that about you. Nobody would respect you if you let them see that part of yourself. And Plass and Cofield say that this is a reactive mistrust. It's always in us. It infects our relationships with God, with others, and in a profound way, they say, it alienates us from ourselves because we think we have to hide ourselves. We think we have to put on a mask. We try to protect ourselves by hiding behind our false self. The false self is this image that we curate of ourselves to present to the world. It's a coping mechanism for the mistrust we have in God, in ourselves, in others. It's easy to get lost in. And we use that false self to distract from hurts and traumas that we haven't dealt with yet, to ignore sin issues that we can't really get a handle on, to con ourselves into believing that we have everything under control, to present a likable, palatable version of myself to the world so I might be accepted. Our false self makes us lonely. We create this false self and then we get lost in it. Our identity is enmeshed in this image and we lose the ability to be real even with ourselves. If our goal is to feel secure that somehow for us seems to go hand in hand with choosing to be alone, letting our reactive mistrust of others keep us detached from anybody and everybody. Let's throw it back to the mid-90s for this one. Simba of the Lion King believes that he is responsible for his father's untimely death in a stampede of wildebeest, and he runs away from his family, his best friend, his home. We get a classic... Disney time-lapse montage set to the tomb of Hakuna Matata to show us that he spent several years wrestling up grub with Timon and Pumbaa before being challenged by Nala to return home, reclaim his rightful place as king, deal with his stuff. But Simba, a cartoon lion, spends years stuffing down any connection he has to his family, to who he really is. He spends years numbing himself, and the longer he has been away, the easier it is to detach from himself. And so in that famous scene where Mufasa eventually appears to Simba in a cloud, he does not chide him and tell him he's being lazy or wasteful or just get over yourself and go back. He specifically tells Simba what he needs to hear. You are more than what you have become. And I need you to remember who you are. Simba could not be himself until he remembered who 
he was. We've all been hurt by rejection, by betrayal, the absence or abuse of others. This goes all the way back to the ways that we were raised in our families of origin, how we learned attachment. This starts to get into some mental health stuff. When we are children, if our connection to our primary caregivers are healthy, we have a framework to continue to make healthy connections with other people. But if our emotional attachments were unsafe or unstable or unreliable, our capacity for relational connections as adults is restricted. The attachment system in our brains compels us to connect with others, and it eventually controls how we connect with others. There's four basic patterns of how we learn to attach. Secure, anxious, avoidant, scattered. Now, for a couple of these, for examples, think of Frozen. I clearly have a three-year-old. Um, <laughs> think of Frozen. With anxious, think Princess Anna. Clingy, overly trusting of others, desperate to be needed and to be chosen and to be loved. And for avoidant, think of her sister Elsa, mistrusting, self-reliant, overly rigid boundaries to keep people further away. And the main factor for which pattern a child will establish is their ability to trust their caregiver. Without the ability to trust oneself and others well, our intimacy with them is blocked. And so we learn from our families of origin if we can trust people. We learn through the attachment styles that they have in relationships because of their family of origin. We learn through their interactions with us. We learn through the way that they respond and guide us through experiences and situations that are major for us as kids. How do they respond to that? How do they hold that? We hone and harbor all of this, and our attachment style reinforces how we trust or mistrust in relationships. There's some hard wiring, some brain activity at play here. So our implicit unconscious memory guides how we navigate our relationships with other people. See, in general today, people know what we want them to know about us and no more. Or we find ways to keep people at arm's length and we choose to share information about ourselves in a way that we won't be held accountable or required to divulge any more information than what we have carefully curated. It's true. I see how we use social media. I see how we share and talk about ourselves and our lives with one another. We, I know we all have those people in our lives where you know we'll be in a relationship and they'll tell us how everything is going great and then they will post on social media about how this battle of depression has been the loneliest of their lives. Or we know some people we're very close with or we think we are until their marriage, which seemed perfect, implodes and we are blindsided by a divorce. Why do we do that? So many of us, we have learned that we can't trust others to know and accept our true selves, to know what is really going on because of our own stories and experiences of judgment, of disappointment, of hurt, of betrayal, of feeling like we don't measure up. So we don't recognize when a place is safe or not to show our true selves or where to go about doing that in a way that we'll have support if we need it, belonging that we crave. There has to be another way to go about that. <laughs> because God has provided us a new way to do things, a new way to look at things. God has provided us a new family, the church. And in God's design, this new family is a place to be both known and loved as we are known and loved by God. This means church this is not supposed to be a place where we have to put on our false selves. 
This means the church is where we can be authentic about our struggles and our fears and our pain. This means the church is called to answer that authenticity with grace and with hospitality, to allow the space needed for God to do his healing and redemptive work. Early on in the days of the followers of Jesus, Acts 2 illustrates a picture we still use as a framework for church today. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. When you are spending that much time with people, that closely investing your time and your resources in a posture of learning and of growing, you can't keep your false self on perpetually. They spoke their needs and others responded to and answered those needs. They invited one another into their homes. They shared table fellowship. They earnestly dedicated themselves to Jesus together. We need community to cast off the image of our false selves. Scripture reminds us, Cofield and Plass say, that in the midst of broken, sinful, frustrating people, God's spirit is at work creating a transformed community. God is not surprised by our brokenness. His way of maturing us isn't thwarted. In fact, it is in and by the messiness that God does the supernatural work of drawing us into the likeness of his son. Now, please hear what I am not saying. Please don't feel that you have to overshare or trauma dump your life on everybody. An overcorrection in our attempt to rebuild trust would be deciding to throw caution to the wind because there are appropriate and inappropriate people to trust and times to practice that, environments. And to rebuild trust with others is to open yourself up to risk. Remember, the church is made up of a lot of imperfect people trying to follow Jesus to the best of their abilities. Paul has a lot to say in the New Testament about how believers are to be in community with one another, and it's not because we were, like, awesome at it. There are around 60 different famous one another directives for believers in relationship with other believers in the New Testament. Things like love one another, bear one another's burdens, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, pray for one another. Every instruction to care for and love one another well is a reminder that authentic, vulnerable community is a hard-fought victory. It is not something we do by accident. It is not something we don't have to work at. People all over the place, inside and outside of the faith, inside and outside of this room, are grappling with loneliness. And what we are all seeking is belonging. Church, we have a responsibility to meet the authenticity and vulnerability of others with grace and with love. We have a responsibility to create spaces where authentic, vulnerable community can be cultivated, where people can trade their loneliness for belonging. And our very nature and design demand that we participate in knowing and loving others and being known and loved in return. Now, at Outlook, we form small groups as environments where these essential relationships might be able to take place. 
These are communities where we learn to take off the mask of our false selves. And let me tell you, my own small group has been filled with vulnerabilities, with huge losses, with painful blind spots, with major life transitions. And I cannot tell their stories for them. But there are also lighthearted ways that I have benefited and learned to trust and to rely on these people. Dennis comes uh, to group early to pooper scoop my yard so the kids have somewhere to play. Lisa spent weeks staying late after group to change uh, my wound dressing after a surgery that didn't go well, and I was really freaked out about it. Tommy arrived to group just the other week uh, to my realization that I didn't have any clean plates in my whole house for dinner. And he hightailed it out, went back to the store, bought me plates. Amy helped me put out a grease fire and come up with a backup plan for dinner. All of this is stuff that happened recently in our group. <laughs> Emily hauls my daughter around when I am overwhelmed and when I need a break. These are very silly ways that I am reminded I need help and I clearly do not have it all together. But these are also people who see firsthand how my marriage is doing. They observe how my husband and I interact with one another. They see how gentle my parenting really is. They have an all-access pass to who I really am and how I interact with the world, and it is scary and uncomfortable. It is a lot of effort. But it is also the most rich and rewarding choice I have ever made for my discipleship to Jesus, hands down. I would really prefer to do life on my own. But I have fallen in love with my Christian community. To be known and to be loved is a great honor, and it is a precious privilege to be granted access to their lives as well. So this month, as we talk through Live Free, through relationships, you'll see stories for the rest of the month of people choosing to do life together in small group and how they've seen that as a value in their lives. These groups have put in time and effort before they were really able to experience the richness of belonging. This is an encouragement, and it's an invitation to you as well. Would you like to find a place of belonging to grow with others? Do you have one? The opposite of loneliness is belonging. We've been given an invitation to belong to God himself and to belong to the family of God where we are known and where we are loved. We're gonna move now into a time of communion. I encourage you to pick up your cups if you grabbed one on the way in. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that through Jesus we have access to the Father and the Spirit, and therefore, consequently, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but we are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was to provide for us a path into the family of God, not through our own works or our own effort. And part of our weekly gathering is to celebrate his resurrection, his victory over death remembering that because we've become a part of the family of God, we belong to him. We are known and we are loved by him. Psalm 68 says that God put the lonely in families. And as we look around today, we are among family and get to remember Christ in unison. So now let's take the bread. I invite you to take the bread, remembering Christ's broken body. And I invite you to take the juice, remembering Christ's blood spilled. And let's respond appropriately as those who have received this good news and live accordingly. Let me pray.
God, you put the lonely in families. And we are so grateful um, to be welcomed into the family of God, just as we are. Father, I pray this morning for those who are experiencing um, just the paralysis of loneliness. I pray, God, that you continue to form and create this church as one that can be a place of belonging, that we as individuals that make up one body um, might seek out those who need a place of belonging, might practice knowing one another and being known and loving one another and being loved well in accordance with the way that you've designed us. Thank you for your goodness, your invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.